today. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see y'all. Hope you're doing well. If you want to stand up and Oh, happy Father's Day, by the way. Glad to have some fathers here. Welcome. But, um, you know, stand up, we'll pray, and we'll praise God. Father, you're amazing. Uh, we're here for you. Um, we've all had you work in our lives some way or another, and that's led us here, God. Um, we are grateful that we're here to sing your praises this morning, to lift you up, to hear your word, to grow as your sons and daughters, your brothers and sisters, your servants. Uh, so we just pray for your church this morning, that everything they do goes to you, for your kingdom. Pray for Leonard, pray for the youth. Uh, let it be a great morning for you, God. We love you and praise you, God. Amen. Remember 
Father's Day to all the fathers who are here and all the fathers joining us online. Hopefully, uh, it's a great day for you guys. And as um, we gather, hopefully for all of us, uh, it's a great day, great first day of the week. Uh, when you have sunshine and warm weather, that's a pretty good start, isn't it? And as uh, we gather, hopefully we can just layer on top of that uh, God's Word and allow it to just bring that, that sense of um, hope and purpose and joy. And if God is trying to speak to our hearts in any way, um, I just hope that happens as well. So before we begin, I just want to offer this time in His Word uh, before the Lord. So I ask you if you'd bow with me, let's just uh, take our hearts before Him. Lord Jesus, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be attuned to you. Lord, we know that you have purposes that have transcended space and time, that for 2,000 years, the unfolding of your kingdom in all the places that it has shown up, we just ask that this would be a place as well that would register uh, for your purposes, that you would, in each of our hearts, uh, specifically help us uh, to see your vision for our lives, for our church, for our families. We thank you, Lord, that as we engage with your word, your Holy Spirit enables us to see the things that we can't see otherwise. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you help uh, our hearts especially uh, to hear your word and to see um, uh, the Lord's, uh, the, the Father's Son, Jesus, in it. Um, Lord, as we take that special prayer and we place it before your throne, we trust that you will work and your word will not return void. Uh, so help us, Father, in whatever state we're in as we gather, whether we are in a moment of crisis or hurting or we are in a mo moment of despair and I ask Father that you just speak to those aspects of our lives if there are things in our lives that you are working on and for and towards I pray that we'd be open to that as well but in all things Lord we just ask you be active in our hearts as we uh, seek that help us to attune to the Lord's prayer and everything that it represents in our journey and uh, help us to pray it with sincerity, understanding uh, its purpose. So would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, as we gather uh, again uh, this Sunday, uh, as you know, we've been journeying through the book of Luke, and hopefully, as I've said, probably every Sunday that you've been here as we've done that, I hope that the path that Luke has laid out for you and I is a path that we have um, uh, consented to the Lord uh, to, to lead us down. And there's a lot to be said about the willingness of our hearts to follow the ways of the Lord because it can be very challenging. And when Jesus especially gave us this parable that we're going to be looking at, it really did clarify a lot of things for the people that were following him around and asking the question, you know, who is this Jesus and what does he have to say about my life. And, you know, churches hopefully are attractive places for those questions. They can also be attractive places for other things as well. If you were in social media this week, maybe you noticed the other day that we had an uninvited guest. And we never have uninvited guests here, uh, but there was one that evidently showed up in our woods. And uh, that was, uh, it's believed to be a 150-pound black bear that has lost his way. And there were a lot of people interested in knowing what his story was. 
And he definitely uh, was, was just seeking and searching. And when the cops showed up, we knew it was pretty serious. And then when the animal patrol showed up, we thought, well, maybe there is a bear back there. Because I kind of just wrote it off like, yeah, sure, there's a bear back there. Um, yeah, and there's also a giraffe, and there's a dinosaur, too, if you look hard enough. You know, so I was pretty cynical about the whole thing until all of a sudden, all of Salem started showing up at First Christian Church. And it was pretty amazing just to see cars coming, all ages, all kinds of people, just dri driving in here. And we're like, oh, we got some people coming, some guests. And then they drive around the back parking lot real slow. Are we going to see a bear? Are we going to see a bear? You know, you can just see it on their faces. They're just so excited about the prospect of not having to pay money to go to the zoo and just come here. And so it was, uh, it was an interesting day, to say the least. Um, and I didn't really know how to process the fact that we had something so unusual happening here at First Christian Church, other than I just wondered if the bear ever found his family. Because I got to think, if he's only 150 pounds, he's not a very big one, meaning that he's looking for his tribe, his group, his family, I don't know, maybe even his mom. And I thought, you know, I hope as God has created this animal to maybe be a part of that group that he can find his way back. And as I thought about that, it didn't take much of an imagination to consider why Jesus was doing what he was doing in Luke chapter 8, because it really has a desire hidden behind it that comes to the surface and has come to the surface repeatedly that God has to recover that which has been lost, to reconcile with that or those people that have become disconnected. It really has the feeling of a father trying to find his lost child. And so Jesus is very strategically and very intentionally spending these three years of ministry to demonstrate exactly that. And right out of the gate, you ask the question maybe, what would he prioritize as he begins to teach? And what he does is something that may be familiar or not familiar, but if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that this parable, which is a framing parable, which means it is the parable that you think through all the other parables, as you're reading this parable, all three gospel writers said, this is pretty important to get right. And so I want to just review it real quickly. We covered part of it last week, but I want to just expand on where Jesus goes with the part that we didn't mention uh, by just picking it up again, because it's really meant to be read and heard as a story. So here we go. One day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him. So just think about people coming to see the bear. That's sort of what Jesus was like when he showed up on the landscape. Very unusual, uh, certainly not something you would predictably expect. And so they were just on, they were on their, on their toe, you know, just kind of on, on edge, waiting to see how this thing would unfold. So here's what Jesus says. A farmer, which everybody knew in that day and age, um, what that was all about, went out to plant his seed. And as he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on, and the birds ate it. Other seed fell among rocks, and it began to grow, but the plant soon withered and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. Still... Other seed fell in the fertile soil, and the seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as has been planted. So just think for a minute. Typically, a farmer will expect five to tenfold in this setting. Jesus is saying, no, 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 a hundredfold. 
So just put a little bookmark on that thought for a second, because when he said this, he called out, anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. And if anybody had ears to hear, they would know that this was a quote from the Old Testament from the book of Isaiah, where before they went into exile, God had said, Isaiah, go and tell them the good news, but chances are it's not going to be important to them, and they're going to turn a deaf ear. And that's the last thing that a father wants to see in the life of a child that he hopes to reconcile with. And so Jesus is just saying the problem is a willingness to hear the, or the capacity to hear the word. Okay, so you with me so far? All right, let's move on. So his disciples, whenever they heard this, they asked him, what does this parable mean? And he replied, you're permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach others so that scripture might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. And when they hear, they won't really understand. So that's Isaiah 6, just kind of laid bare. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know that one all too well. And then he explains, the seeds fell among the thorns, and they represent those who hear the message, but too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. Um, so I got that backwards. That's my fault. Um, I, I got I to I be honest with you. Uh, Brittany said, you're kind of checking out, aren't you? Because I'm going on vacation after this. I'm really excited about it. But I'm also excited about telling this as well. Because uh, it's one of my favorite parables. So here's the part I just left out. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message, only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but since they don't hear, don't have the deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. And then it goes back to what I just shared with you. So as we kind of end uh, the explanation, and hopefully I'm sure you're thinking I'm kind of in a fog now because you got that out of order. Well, hopefully what I share next will put that into a little bit of perspective. But as you are... Um, as you're pondering this parable, I just want to tell you from a personal point of view, the first time that I read it, I, um, I looked at this and, um, well, yeah, let's read 14 and 15 as well. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell onto the good soil represent the honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. So that's the story in order. But what does it mean? The first time I read this, I thought, holy cow, that's me. Matter of fact, all four of those are me. And as I heard it, I thought about farming because I come from a farming community, and I know exactly what it's like to see farmers go out in the spring, put some kind of pre-emergent spray on the ground that keeps the weevils or the, 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 the rootworms or any other type of pestilence that would destroy the crop. They put that out first. Sometimes, depending on if they do no-till or whether they disc or plow, uh, they'll get that machinery out. But in their mind, there's always a process involved in farming, and it, it, involves, um, it involves cultivating the soil, aerating the soil, fertilizing the soil, 
and then planting the seed in the soil after it's prepared. Now, last summer, I actually preached on this sermon, and I talked about John and Molly Chester, who um, uh, there was a documentary uh, that was described as the Little Big Farm. And essentially, if you, if you saw it, maybe some of you did, uh, you can look it up. It's on YouTube or Netflix um, or a- Amazon, I think, is when we watched it. But what was interesting about the documentary was this was a young, idealistic couple who didn't know a whole lot about farming, but they wanted to learn. And so they bought a tract of land north of Los Angeles, and in that space, it was a former orchard that had just basically been left to neglect. And the ground was so hard and compacted that uh, it was really kind of a fool's errand in the making is what it appeared to be. And yet, they had hopes that somehow in the hardness of that soil, they could recover it and create a farm. So what did they do? They asked for help. And they called people in and they said, look at what we have. Can you tell us how we can take this hard, dusty ground and make it produce a crop? And the first thing they said was, that ground isn't capable of doing anything. It is completely and totally void of that capacity. It's just hard ground, which was a little discouraging until they said, but the remedy here is earthworms. And so they're like, okay, it's going to take a lot of earthworms. And they said, you not only need earthworms, you need the manure from the earthworms. Maybe that strikes a chord with you if you remember me talking about it. So you need some manure for sure, which is just an interesting image for church to begin with. But as you're thinking about this story unfolding and all the earthworms that are involved, you might believe that if they just get enough excrement from the earthworms, it'll all be fine, which they went through this process of integrating earthworms into the soil. And over time, the soil started to show the capacity to receive the seed and emerge out of that uh, a a product that would bear fruit. But then they kind of hit a wall. And interestingly enough, when the consultant was asked, what is it that we need to do now? Because we're in a crisis mode again. We've put all of this money all of this hard work in clearing the land and making sure that it is prepared properly for a farm that we hope to build. We did what you said. We got millions of earthworms, and, well, it's not happening. Here's the vital thing that they said that I want to I ponder today. And the soil expert said this. Plants build the soil. Plants build the soil. Plants come from seeds. The seed produces plants. Plants build the soil. Without plants, you can't have soil. You can't have, you can't have topsoil. Plants are the critical component. But only if you have seeds in the mix, which are oftentimes kind of in the ground just waiting to come up, but if the conditions are not right, they will just lay there dormant for a long time. Now, when my great-great-great-great-grandfather settled in Illinois, the word on the street in, on the East Coast was, if you go to Illinois, it's just swamp ground that has had years and years and years, literally centuries of plants growing and dying and then re-emerging as more plants and the topsoil is unbelievably deep. Matter of fact, uh, the town near, near where I live, Arthur, Illinois, is described as having topsoil that is 100 feet deep in some places. I mean, can you imagine? And all that is, all that soil is seeds, that have turned into plants, that have turned into soil. But what's the vital ingredient here for things to take on life? Seeds. 
Without the seeds, you don't have the plants. But there has to be something about the conditions of the soil that allow the seeds to grow in the first place. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying that I'm coming and I'm sharing the good news, but there are some people in the crowd that it's not going to work very well with for these reasons. And as Jesus was sharing this message, there were a lot of people from a cross-section of society taking a keen interest in the spectacle that was Jesus, kind of like the bear the other day, because I saw old cars, new cars, rich people, poor people, people with a lot of kids, people with no kids, and everything in between wanting to know, hey, hey, First Christian, what's going on with the bear? And um, even the funeral director sent me a thing saying, show me the picture. I think JT must have took it or something. And then it was just like an emoji that said, and I said, yeah, I had a funeral that day. I said, I, I've chosen to leave Brittany at the church, and I went and hung out at the cemetery, if that, if that, if that means anything to you. Well, Brittany's still alive, so that's good. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, how when something dramatic or something spectacular is going on, everybody noticed. And so Jesus looking at all the people in the crowd and he knows not everybody's there to hear the word from the Father. And what he hopes to accomplish is that in the process, he can at least stir the soil up enough that there'll be a willingness to hear that word. And hopefully, hopefully, prayerfully, that word will begin to take root. And, well... It's a concern that I have, and I think it's timely that we're in the book of Luke right now because we have come out of a year of pandemic, which has been very brutal. And I would say if there were things in our hearts that are dark, that's come to the surface. Whatever it is that we, we kind of keep control of normally, under those conditions, I think it just kind of spilled out for a lot of people, a lot of us. Or maybe we weren't so nice, or maybe we were so afraid, or maybe uh, addictive elements of our personality started to emerge, or just uh, our relationship started to crumble. A lot of things go on whenever you're under that kind of stress. And so I do have to ask the question, as a result of what we've been through and what we're reading, how's your heart? And... The only person probably that can speak to that is the Lord and yourself. And even in that case, you're, you're not really sure. And I would say that the best way to get a gauge on how your heart is is to just bring it alongside the Word of God, and it'll show you. I mean, a familiar way is to just consider the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Have those things been very active in your life in this past year? And if not, perhaps the condition of your heart is such that you need a little work. And maybe, like the farmers who were just learning about soil, there's a hardness there that's began to, to, to emerge. And I know church practitioners like myself and others who are in this industry, so to speak, if you want to put it that way, will say there's a number of people that will probably not come back to church because the conditions are such that, um, well, they're, they're kind of hardened against it or they're distracted from it. And that's a concern as well. But my hope is that when we gather and we think about how's your heart when we've gone through something I think much worse than worm manure, but it's a variety of that from all kinds of other sources, the question is, what effect has that had on you? Because the goal for God is I'm not going to waste anything, but I'm going to use everything to lead my people back to myself. And it may be the fact that in this room, he's waking you up to some hardness that's started to occur. 
And I hope, and my prayer has been, and I've been praying, and the elders have been praying, and the staff's been praying, that we would have a predisposition to hear the word in a fresh way once again. And I would love to think that it would go something like what we read in Deuteronomy 32.2. Let my teaching fall like rain and words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants, which is, believe it or not, what a lot of us have hoped for lately because we know that the plants need a drink. And I think we do as well. And not the alcoholic kind, but the kind that is more of the spirit. And as we consider that, I'm hoping that as we gather, God is saying, I want to speak to you in a fresh way. But I also want to ask the question, how do our hearts get into that hard space? Because we've talked a little bit about distractions and cares of the world, but I, I really want to hone in on that issue of hardness, because I think pastorally it is something to consider. And whenever our hearts get hardened, I think, I think there are different ways that that happens, but here's a few. One is when I have been hurt in some way, usually in a relationship, perhaps even from church, because church people, they can, we cannot always be nice. We're forgiven, life is messy, and our Savior is perfect, and he's hopeful that we will fall in line, but at times we don't, and we send the wrong signal. But either way, maybe we have been disappointed by how life has unfolded and things that we had hoped for and aspirations that we've had, and it's painful when they don't unfold the way we thought, and we're kind of hurt, and we're like, God, where are you? God, what are you up to? God, why? And you say that, enough and you don't feel like God is doing anything, well, things start to get a little tough. Or I've been misunderstood and you try to share with somebody, hey, this is what's been going on and people are so distracted and into themselves and perhaps preoccupied that they're not really even listening. And then you get kind of hard and you get kind of jaded. Or maybe when I feel like I'm not enough. And for some of us, it's like, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and it's just not working the way it's supposed to be working. And it could be on a variety of fronts. It can be with your relationships with people that you're close to. It can be with your work. It can be with just your, how you're thinking about how you're doing with God. And you keep saying this over and over, I'm hurt, I'm misunderstood, I don't feel like I'm enough or I'm good enough. You say that over and over, eventually you start to believe that that is the way life is, that the circumstances that you are in define everything about what is going on. And what Jesus has come into the world from the outside of the circumstances to do is to show us that the circumstances of life are not the ending point, but they are actually the place where God begins to do his good work. Dare I say, in the crap of life, which a lot of people would say, yeah, there's some of that. I was at a wedding yesterday, and uh, you know, they talked about you know, there, there, there are three rings in marriage. There's the groom's ring, and there's the bride's ring, and then there's suffering. I'd never heard that before, but I thought, well, you know, I don't know if I should incorporate that into my next, into my next uh, sermon but, uh, or my, my next wedding. But everybody knows that relationships that matter will oftentimes elicit some degree of suffering. It could be, it could be towards each other. Oftentimes, it's with each other. And those things, as they go to work in us, can drive us to doubt God, doubt his purpose, doubt his faithfulness, doubt his caring. And eventually, that doubt just turns into a hardness of heart that says, I tried the God thing, and it didn't work. But what I find in the words of Scripture 
is something that we've been sort of looking at this whole time, and that is how the seed changes all of that. Because in the midst of everything that I just described, God says, that's the right kind, and I don't want to mean any disrespect, that's the right kind of manure for this thing to kind of start to take hold. So I get a phone call, Pastor, I've had this happen in my life, and I don't know what to do. I don't even know if God's been hearing my prayers. And I like to tell them, look, I don't know how God shows up whenever we go through different things, but I do know this personally. God always shows up in his own way. He's got your back more than you know. Our biggest problem, I think, is the timeline for when he's going to do what he's supposed to be doing. All those things, I think, are bundled into that question. How's your heart? How's my heart? And I think for those of us who are feeling like we're starting to thrive again, it's been faithfully going through the book of Luke and just asking the question, Lord, do you have a timely word for me, for us? For our church. And I can only say, I think he's answered that question repeatedly and often and faithfully. There's something about the word, which is, according to this parable, what? The seed. The seed that's being dropped in. But when we get in that state where we're sort of not thinking about God very much, then we're not actually engaging with the seed very much, which means that we're not producing many plants, which means there's not much decay, which means the seeds can't really grow. And what it creates is sort of like a barrenness of soil. See, when John and Molly Chester in, um, in, in, the, in the big small farm bought that piece of property, it was, in effect, the result of a long journey of former orchard keepers who, for whatever reason, lost the vision for what that could do, and they just let it go. And it was neglected. And it was, by the time they were able to buy it for the price that they did, it was deemed unfruitful. And there really is a lot in the Bible that talks about those very conditions for God's people. But when the soil expert came and he did his consulting, he said, what this property lacks is a gardener. The gardener is the one who puts it back in order. I mean, we, my son bought, bought the property next door, which you've heard me talk about ad nauseum, but if you saw it when we bought it, the guy who had owned it, I don't know where he was at in his heart or his head, but basically his parents owned it, and I don't know who owned it before then, but there's a legacy of family imprinted on it. However, after he just abandoned it, you know what was growing there? Not just weeds. I wish I could show you the scars on my arms, thorns, brambles, greenbriars, nasty stuff. And that's what takes hold whenever you just neglect it, when you don't have a gardener tending it. But I would say that when Jesus came, as we've talked about before, because it all fits together so interestingly, who is our gardener? Jesus. Jesus is our gardener, and he's coming to do a good work by scattering seeds out into the places where he hopes they'll germinate. And it's a beautiful metaphor because the responsibility is placed on the garden, gardener to scatter the seeds and to cultivate and to tend it. But even Paul, when he writes about this in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, I watered, 
Apollos, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. And there's something about this image that I think is helpful for us. Because when it comes to people getting saved, our job is to plant the seed. It is to throw it out there. But I, I come from a, a family where there's a little bit of enabling going on, and I've caught that bug a little bit, and I see somebody who's coming along. I want to kind of help them make it happen. But I can't really bear responsibility for where you're at in your heart in relation to the seed. I can't make the seed grow. All I can do, hopefully, is helpfully bring the seed into your life, and it begins to speak. But sometimes, you know, whenever uh, somebody is going slipping off the path, we just sort of come in hard and heavy and say, we're going to give them a bunch of Bible verses, or we're going to kind of tell them how it is, and we're going to try to change it, and we're going to try to make it happen. I'm going to try to do all this stuff. And it's a little bit misguided, because the thing that does all the work is the the word that's planted. Our job is to just share it in a loving and hopefully kind way that's compelling, gently like a farmer putting it into the ground. Well, enough about that. Let's just move on a little bit into um, some of the things that are indications that your heart may be hard. And I just want us to ponder these for a second. If you ever feel like you come to a place in your mind about this, about God, and you're just cynical about life, that's actually a pathway of saying, I don't want any seeds, I don't want any plants, I don't want any of that God stuff, I just want to be left alone. And perhaps there are spouses that have come into this place where one person is saying, I'm all about it, and another person is saying, I'm just here. And there's a hardness there. Or maybe there's anger or bitterness or resentment or blame. And I think about some friends of mine who, in my early years, they were very active with myself and others in the youth group, and we just had an uproariously good time. And it was fun ministering to kids. And his name was Kenny. And uh, he and his wife were walking their kids at the park, and this, this guy was driving down the road, and he had a heart attack, and he just hit the accelerator, and he ran over their daughter, and she died. And to this day, as far as I know, they've never gone back to church because it was just too much. And so when we lose someone, we tend to think, God, why? Why? The thing that I do know is that the psalmist writes, you have stored up my tears in a bottle. And people talk about judgment day as sort of like, well, that's the day I don't look forward to. But you know what I think is going to go on especially? He's going to say, I've heard your cries. I've heard your, 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 your moans. I've seen your tears. I've stored them up. And behold, I am wiping away all your tears. And I'm going to make everything new. That's our God. And as he's looking at that, he's saying, I want you to get it, and I want you to get it now. The, better, the sooner you get it, the sooner more people come to understand that, but we can get in such a self-protective state where these things begin to take hold and they just quench anything from growing. And Jesus knows these things are going on in the people that he's talking to, and he knows they are happening even in this room. And I think that's why the Proverbs writer says in Proverbs 4.23, above everything else, guard your heart. It's that special place 
that when things take hold in there that are not right, that are dark, they will take over. I literally could not walk on the property next door. I didn't even go over there. I never went over there when, when the guy left. And the longer he was gone, the more the brambles took over. So much so that I think John Monroe just felt sad and sorry for us. He said, you're not going to tackle that on your own. And the gracious soul that he was, he dropped off a skid steer and a backhoe, both with grapplers, and he said, take it on, because if you don't, it will take you on. And it was a job bigger than anything that I could do, and COVID was just kicking in about that time, and he dropped those off, and we cleared a lot of brambles, so much so that we built a fire that I think, I think NASA was saying, there's a bright spot on the earth. We're not sure what that is, but it's really glowing, and if they saw it, it was brambles. And if you drive by there now, you don't see any of that stuff anymore because, well, it needed a gardener not the same property. I was working on it the other day, and a guy pulled in, and I know he was thinking, I wonder if that property's for sale, whereas before, somebody's like, that's an eyesore. The township needs to do something about that, and that's the difference. Your heart may need a gardener. Guard it so that he can do his good work. Well, let's, let's begin to um, move uh, through this uh, to the space where we need to be now. I do know this. Every time we hear God's word and we don't do what it tells us to do, we're basically saying, I don't need that or that doesn't matter or that's not important. But what eventually happens is, this is just the process, when we don't do it, when we don't trust it, when we don't follow it, our hearts get a little bit harder, just a little bit. Whereas you could end up coming to church after 20 years, hear a sermon and say, I don't even know what the preacher's talking about anymore because you can't even hear it. I do not want to see that happen with you guys. And if it's starting to happen, God is saying to you, you may or may not like the preacher, but if he says something that is in alignment with my word, pay attention because it will not return void. It is a seed when it is planted. It will do what it needs to do. It will create what is necessary for other plants to grow. It will just expand on itself. And that's why we need to be in studies with people. We need to be in, 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 in groups where the word is being discussed. We need to be around people that are speaking the word to us. We need to be engaged in things where the word is going out to people who have never heard it before because that is our job based on this parable. And when God says, you, you need to do those things, and you say, I don't, that's not for me, I don't need that. Then what God is seeing is the organic material starting to kind of die off and the sandy, hard-packed soil start to take hold. So I want to just end with this statement Plants build soil, plants come from seeds. The seed produces the plants, plants build the soil. If you take anything at all from this sermon, I hope it's that. Because the Bible isn't just a, oh, I've read it, now I know it. It is actually the kind of material that you read it and you think about it and you ponder it and you ask the question, God, as I'm reading your word, speak to me. Help me to hear what you're saying. And God, in a very personal way, will do that. Because God isn't just about abstract propositions like this is the way it is and uh, these are the four points about everything you need to know, the end. We don't really work that way. We're storied people. Jesus came into the world, and everything that he did was a story, right? And then when he talked, he told stories, basically propositions that were embedded in real-life situations so that we could say, oh, yeah, that's how it works. And so just consider, your heart is that soil. 
And what you have heard today has been the scattering of a few seeds. And the question that God has for you, are you trusting me enough to leave here clinging to that seed and allowing it to grow and take effect? And I, I got to tell you, there's nothing more exciting for me than to hear people leave here and then say, yeah, I've been thinking about the word of God this way. And I just know, oh, they're not only just connected to the word, they're connected to the God who is speaking to them through the word, because the word isn't the end in itself. It is just the vessel by which we hear the voice of God and we tune into it. And I hope that we are never in that space where we are ever hearing but never listening. We're ever seeing but not understanding. But the more the word is taking root in your life and mine, the more we get it. So here's the bottom line. In the case of this parable, Jesus wants us to understand the different kinds of soil. But I also think he wants us to understand, more importantly, why things aren't growing when they're not growing. And it has everything to do with how well you're allowing the gardener to tend to your heart. The kind of dirt we have will determine the kind of growth that you're going to see. And if growth is happening, that means you're in tune with what the gardener is doing. And that's a relationship. And many of us in the room have heard the word. We've turned away from the ways of the world. We've turned towards Jesus. We've identified with him in the waters of baptism. We've come out with an understanding that being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a means by which we create a vital relationship. And the scripture even promises that as a result of that, you will have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in your life for the rest of your life. And the Holy Spirit will be an enabling and an animating presence that helps you to do those things that you never thought you could do. And I've seen it happen so many times, I just don't even doubt it anymore. But what I do question is where your heart is and whether or not it's in a good place for a good relationship with him. And the place to begin is with surrender. Saying to the Lord Jesus, I trust you again, Lord, as my Lord and Savior. Now, I was watching the vows being exchanged yesterday. It was interesting. It was the first wedding I'd ever been to that God wasn't mentioned. Isn't that strange? Never been to one like But that's, that's a thing. It was in a barn. It was by an officiant who just said to the state of Ohio, register me as an officiant. They did. They did a interesting and entertaining exchange of vows. But there was no covenant being created between those two people and the Lord. And I felt for him because I'm like, without that covenant, it's never going to work. Yeah, you're going to be good to each other, and you're going to do a lot of good things for each other, but that's not enough. The sustaining force in your life is the presence of God covenantally bound to you as you surrender your life in him and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, and as a result of that, I want to be in a covenantal relationship with you. We're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper, and it is the supper that symbolizes that relationship through the new covenant that sustains us. And so as we move into that space, I, I want us to just take our cups and do what you have to do to get them ready. Hopefully you don't spill any on yourself. If you do, it's okay. We've all done it. But as you take the cup and you take the loaf that symbolizes 
the covenantal relationship that you and I have with the gardener. It is God's way of saying, I am with you, not just in the promises and affirmations of my word. I am with you embodied through my son Jesus. And this is how we know. So would you bow with me as we, as we conclude? Lord Jesus, we know that everything that you said 2,000 years ago still holds true. Otherwise, the tradition wouldn't have prevailed like so many haven't. And so these are living words. These are words that bring life because they are seeds that are embedded in the soil of our hearts. Lord Jesus, we are about to take something substantial and bring it into our very bodies, our very being as a reminder of the oneness that we have with you covenantally. And I pray for those who are, are not formally in that covenant, that this meal would be a way of realizing that's really what it's all about. I pray that you show yourself faithful in the struggles that our people go through, that you'd show yourself diligent in helping us to get hard hearts to a place where they become fruitful. I ask, Father, that you help us to examine where the brambles are growing and to just cut them out at the root level and to replace them with something that is fruit-bearing and honorable. So bless the loaf and the cup, Lord, as we take it and are reminded of the reality of your abiding presence where you promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus, through the word of Jesus. Amen.
excited to be with y'all. Uh, next Saturday, um, no obligation, but we're having a church work day. We're going to do some mulching, clean up outside, maybe inside. Uh, 8 a.m. if you want. We'll meet here and get to work. See y'all later. <laughs>